I'm super glad that we are here today and I'm glad that it's both audio and video, John. Um, but yeah, I just want to give everybody a quick introduction about John. Um, he's been a leader in multiple industries um, for at least the past 30 years. Um, and I'd love, John, if you, if you want to give a quick um, introduction of yourself. Um, and then also I just want to dive into some questions here as well. But John, let's hey, absolutely. to you. And well, first of all, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be on this podcast. Uh, really happy to do it. Uh, I've had a very strange career. My degree's in engineering, but I started out my career actually in the entertainment industry and uh, spent one year. I was a member of the, the Stagehands Union for several years. And my first year in college, I studied theater and uh, dropped out of college to go back to work because I realized I was making more money in the stagehands union than my professors were making. Uh, so spent a few years in that and then switched to electrical engineering when I went back to school. So uh, I've never run across anybody else that switched from theater to engineering. So that was kind of a unique path. Started out working in the... Uh, engineering industry for a utility then went to a consulting firm and then had the opportunity to transfer down to Houston to start their regional office. Uh, started that in 99, uh, grew it up to just under half a billion dollars in revenue uh, by 2012. Uh, left and was getting ready to, to start going on my own, out on my own. Uh, of all things, developing Valvoline Quick Lube franchises. So uh, that all, so, that, that all, as you know, that all that all kind of played into my motorsports uh, right, activities. Because right. aren't you also uh, had, a race car driver as well, John? I a... am. I am. That, that's been a dream of mine, and actually got uh, got started racing. Uh, when I was 25 and uh, raced semi-pro up until I still do. So I, I'm still wow. racing. Don't get to as much as I would Very like cool. to, but yeah, I, I, I certainly have. That's amazing. And kind of to piggyback off your intro and just your racing career, I feel like you have an eclectic background from, you know, starting out <laughs> in stage and theater. So starting out as a thespian, so a super kind of getting a lot of abilities in public speaking, interpersonal communication, um, while acting, oh, I, and, and also just switching over to engineering, I, which is more like the logical, analytical approach. Like, just to explain what, explain, just like to just learn and dive a little deeper into like how that shift yeah. happened. And then also 25, well, I'm assuming you also were just racing as a hobby, um, karting mm -hmm. as well yeah. growing up. Okay. Uh, not growing up, you know, I was a car geek from day one mm -hmm. uh always worked on cars with my dad you know he, he was a farm boy so uh mm -hmm. you know we, we worked on everything uh you know sa saved up all my lawn mowing money one year to buy a 200 piece craftsman tool set i think when i was 13 and wow. probably still have most of those tools uh mm -hmm. i actually worked on the other side of the microphone so i started out doing sound and lights for some local area bands mm -hmm. and when I was a teenager and a performing arts center opened up and had the opportunity to go to work for them as uh, on their technical staff, mostly as a sound engineer. Mm -hmm. 
and then joined the Stagehands Union and uh, got to work with a lot of different Broadway, off-Broadway, and uh, a lot of big rock bands uh, for, wow. for several years. Uh, went to, like I said, went to one year of college to study uh, theater technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, realized I knew more than what they were teaching. And as I mentioned, I was right. you know, doing and really well uh, Did you start as a union stagehand. So mm-hmm. Did you start oh, your so I went theater... back to work. Mm-hmm. Did you start your theater degree just because in your teen, like your teen years, you were working as a stagehand with lighting and, and doing all that? Um, and it seemed like that mm-hmm. was kind of like what you just wanted to do. Um, do as your career, and then you realize oh, yeah. that I mean, it was, you're kind of smarter than the, the teacher in the room. And well, I, I, yeah, you know, I went into that because certainly what I was doing, and mm-hmm. uh, it was an interesting path. Literally, my freshman year, I took took almost all junior and senior level classes, wow. and I won't say that I was smarter than any of my professors, but I did make a lot more than any of my professors. Wow. So. Uh, it's an interesting career. You know, uh, you work a lot of hours, a hundred hour weeks were not unheard of. Uh, so how were you able to fit college and these 100 hour weeks, um, (laughs) all into your schedule? That sounds like you had to really balance and juggle a lot of different things and really, uh, basically take the most value out of your time. It was it, it was difficult, and even I put my way through engineering school, still working as a union stagehand. So, uh, just because of the nature of the industry, you know, you're busy Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. and so I would tell my teachers, it's like, hey, here's the situation. Here's here's what I do for a job. Uh, you won't see me these days, but mm-hmm. if I need to take tests ahead of time or do whatever, you know. I'll work with you, however. And so, you know, it was not unheard of to get, you know, 18 hours in a day uh, Did or you more. Did go to class and so, um, with that kind of deal with the mm-hmm. with your professor? Okay. So you're just... Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, 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 you know, as soon as I showed up in class, I was up front uh, okay. with, my, with my professors. Uh, they, and they were all more than happy to work with me. Uh, you know, I had, I I had a young daughter at the time, uh, and it's funny, she spent, you know, years on my lap, uh, studying, uh, calculus and chemistry and physics with me. And she went into art. So I don't know, I guess she got that, uh, creative side of the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, by the time I graduated college, I did it for about another year. By that time, I had ten years in the industry, and I'm like, okay, I'm done. I just can't can't do this anymore. Right, and just curious. Um, you said you're, you're making more than your professor. Was it just like hourly work because you're doing eighteen hour days, or were you getting paid per hour at that time, or was it like you had to get yeah, you know, specific know, productions done and it'd be per project? No, back then How'd that work, uh, which would have been. Oh, early 80s to early 90s. I mean, I started out, you know, in the early 80s making, you know, $10 an hour 
and our, mm-hmm. our union rules, you got overtime after eight hours, wow. uh, double time after 12. And if you didn't get eight hours rest between days, you started the next day on overtime wow. until that eight hours was up. So literally the mass, the vast majority of the time that I was working, I was getting paid overtime, mm-hmm. whether it was mm-hmm. time and a half or double time. So, you know, wow. that worked out really well. It kind of, that kind of, gives you a lot of motivation to work those extra hours. It seems like if I was definitely in that position, I'd love to be working and getting paid double time. And uh, yeah, so very cool. Well, people um, don't realize, you know, it, it, it's amazing because, uh, you know, we'll start setting up a show mm-hmm. at five in the morning and then it's not unheard of to get done, you know, between one and three the next morning. Uh, a lot of times I would sleep at the theater before the next the next day, you know, mm-hmm. set up with the neck for the next show. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to actually take cat naps whenever I could. Uh, in fact, there was one show that we did with the Kennedy Center. We did two shows a day uh, and we changed shows each day. So we were always setting up for another show. And literally the, uh, the stage manager would tell us, Hey, you know, like go ahead and t- go ahead and take a quick nap now. So I'd lay my head down on the soundboard. Uh, I may get five or ten minutes of rest. You can mm-hmm. come in, wake me up. You said, "Okay, you got your next cue coming up." Oh, okay, yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> wow. So that's kind of that kind of gives your mind training to be ready, kind of at all hours. So it doesn't matter if it's at one in the morning and you have a you know a ten minute cat nap. You have to be you know on the go. Or you know nine in the morning or five in the morning setting up the the production. <laughs> that, so that that's a um, yeah really yeah, good ab- training. Ab- um, but yeah, absolutely. So, and then you your first year, uh, you started out as a theater technician. Then you switched over into engineering. What kind of engineering did you say again? You you started into uh, my degrees in electrical engineering. Electrical engineering. Okay, and. Uh, it was actually driven because of the entertainment industry, because that mm-hmm. was literally the time that, you know, you, you, the lights were coming out that would pan and tilt and change colors. And I was, wow. you know, very well acquainted with the company that actually developed the first generation. And mm-hmm. my intent was to go work for them once I graduated. Uh, it was one mm-hmm. of those, by the time I graduated, I was so burnt out with the whole industry. I was like, uh, no, I got to do something else. So, uh, I didn't go work for them, but, uh, eh, looking back, I don't know if I made the right choice or not, but it seemed to seem to pay off pretty good. So, you know, I'm happy about it. Yeah. And then what was the first thing that you got into after college again? You first started, uh, cause I pretty much know your career from the time that you, kind of in the late nineties that you've just been kind of a manager director position, but right after college, uh, mm-hmm. besides yeah. racing, what was your, I mean, was that kind of, I bet it was probably, you know, <laughs> it supplemented your income. I'm sure the racing did, but I'm sure it wasn't your main source. Right. Oh, uh, actually I was putting a lot more money in than I was getting out of it and always have, but, uh, I immediately worked uh, for an electric utility, uh, basically on mm-hmm. construction and operations and spent a few years there then uh, a consulting firm in kansas city called me up and said hey why don't you come over uh 
you know, we, some people have recommended you to us. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I went over there and that's when I started my, I guess, consulting career. Mm-hmm. Uh, was only in Kansas City for a while, but one of my clients was a refinery in Corpus Christi. So I had the opportunity to actually go and work there for a year and a half uh, on the refinery uh, operations team. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I spent okay. some time there and then went to Houston. And it was interesting because the work we were doing, you know, was pretty much split down the middle between uh, electric utilities and industrial. And so we wanted to take the knowledge that we had learned, you know, in the industrial market, come to Houston uh, and start selling it there. Uh, Came to Houston and oil had hit $8 a barrel. So there was no industrial work going on. And Mm -hmm. so ended up uh, working for a lot of utilities and then some things changed and then the industrial world came back. So I've, I've, you know, flipped back and forth quite a bit throughout my career. Wow. So just curious, living in Corpus Christi, uh, was that a lot of just, I know it's a partial beach community, but is it like a lot of on the Gulf with a lot of, uh, <laughs> kind of oil, uh, oil wells and oil mine or yeah, oil wells or oil, oil, you know, oil rigs? It, there's a lot of oh. offshore, there's offshore mm-hmm. production, but it actually mm-hmm. has, uh, f- for the size town of it is the the biggest industry is refining and chemicals. Mm-hmm. So there's an awful lot of really large, you know, uh, complexes right along uh, the ship channel that are in refining and chemicals. So, you know, that's the biggest industry, certainly in Corpus uh, I Christi. Uh, I was interested when you were saying yeah. that you wanted to bring kind of the industrial knowledge and move it to Houston from, from I guess it would be from Kansas City and, and Corpus Christi. That, that kind of knowledge into Houston? Well, it was interesting. At, at, at that time, the utilities were all going, the whole industry was going through a reorganization. And mm-hmm. utilities weren't sure what they were going to be when they grew up. And they started requiring the large industrial complexes to own their own high-voltage substations. And so we, mm-hmm. I took my utility knowledge from the substation industry then applied it to large industrials and then learned a lot about uh, surprisingly operations inside refining refineries and chemical plants. Uh, because when we were doing projects, we would have to work around, uh, you know, usually their turnaround schedules and work with the operations team so that we could have, you know, we could shut down parts of the refinery or even, you know, maybe just a single you know, very large motor, uh, mm-hmm. so that we could, you know, change out some of the equipment. And, you know, that was the reason they brought me in, uh, on the operations side, uh, because we were actually doing a lot of project work on their high voltage and medium voltage electrical system. And I, I was very intimately involved in all of that. So that was and, a fun time. Yeah. And also in your kind of in your, Bio pages. You, you mentioned that you have a lot of experience, kind of leading, growing SOP companies. Um, also, first, mm-hmm. I, I looked at the acronym um, SOP Employee Stock Ownership Plan. But if you want to kind of give our listeners kind of a background on uh, SOP, and also if you can share some benefits and challenges of that model, 
Oh, um, absolutely. In fact, um, yeah, uh, I'm a huge fan of ESOPs. I think they're one of the, mm-hmm. the best ways to that owners can transition out of their companies to turn it into an ESOP. Uh, mm-hmm. Burns and McDonald, which was the engineering company I started with in, in Kansas City and then ended up with in Houston, was a an mm-hmm. extremely successful ESOP. So it was 100% ESOP. So 100% of the stock was owned by 100% of the employees. And it changes the culture of a company mm-hmm. because you are working for yourself, because you... Mm-hmm. You know, you're awarded stock, you're paid dividends. Um, and so, you know, it's your company. And um, one, of the, one of the ways our our former CEO explained it was, you know, of course, we all travel a lot and, and have get rental cars. He goes, you know, when was the last time anybody voiced a rental car? It's not yours. You just take it back and you're done with it. But if it's your own car, hey, it's totally different. You know, you take care of it. And, you know, it's the same thing with East because the company did so well. Uh, that was the majority of their retirement, you know, when they left. And uh, for that, like, what's like the so, typical equity structure per employee when you're kind of structuring an ESOP? How, how much would the CEO typically have the C-suite and then also just like uh, the rest of the employees? Well, usually the allocation is built as a percentage of your uh, your allocation of stock is based upon a percentage of your total uh, compensation. So, mm-hmm. and there and there's as soon as I say that there's every flavor of ESOP you know that that you can imagine. Uh, mm-hmm. But the ones I worked at, you were given shares based just strictly upon a a percentage of your of your total income so you know the the ceo got the same percentage as a person working in the mail room Mm -hmm. now obviously the dollar value is different but the percentage is exactly the same i see so the that's that's interesting so i guess the higher up you are the more incentivized because I mean, I guess essentially you're getting paid a little bit more unless you're probably like the head of sales. Uh, you're more incentivized to make sure that the company is, is good. But if you're kind of like, it seems like if you're like one of the lower level folks in, uh, in that structure, I guess they're still incentivized. I mean, since it's just a percentage, but it's not like, it's not probably as life-changing as, for example, if you're the CEO or like you know, C-suite. It's... It, it's really interesting, and it's one of those things that you know time is your friend uh, mm-hmm. because certainly over the years as you get more stock and it appreciates hopefully, and then you mm-hmm. get dividends along with that, you know the value is is quite a bit more. We we always used to laugh when I I would go to the board meetings. We had two ladies that worked in in uh, payroll. And they mm-hmm. literally used to pass out checks when you when you got physical checks, and we'd pass wow. around their ESOP statement, and they were both multimillionaires, and we're like, "Wow, if they earned just five percent on their money, they would make significantly more than they're making now in salary." So when they retired, and I say multi, they were 
they were certainly millionaires. Uh, so they they actually did better in retirement than when they were working. So, you know, it, it's just that whole... That's got to feel really you know, good. Oh, yeah. Does, I does mean, the company absolutely. Have and to, you see, you, in order for that kind of big payout at the end, does the company have to go public um, in order for oh, that to happen? No. Or how does... No, okay. So it could be no, at any... not at all. You can just cash uh, out your, your shares, essentially? Or how does that work? Yeah, typically... Okay, well, one of the things that you have to plan for as an ESOP, and this is where some some certainly get into trouble, is you always have to have a cash reserve for repurchase liability. So it's, you know, if your company's been around for a while, it's pretty easy to project, hey, this many people will leave, you know, each year and, you know, the value of their stock is approximately X. And so you have to make sure that you have money available uh, to repurchase those shares. Uh, usually where ESOPs get into trouble is uh, a, a very large majority shareholder, say the original owner, um, he's selling his stock into the ESOP program. Uh, but when he leaves, he, they have to cash him out. And so, um, if they haven't planned properly for his exit or some of the other board members exits, then mm -hmm. they usually have to get pretty highly leveraged. And that's the one, I guess, downfall of an ESOP is if you put too much leverage on the company. So, you know, it's all about planning and mm -hmm. I've helped some people set up some ESOPs. And that part of it's very enlightening to them. They're like, oh, well, we hadn't hadn't realized that we need to start budgeting for that immediately. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yeah. And, you know, they may put in certain rules that, you know, maybe only one senior officer can retire in a year or each year and then, ha you know, have the option to pay off their shares over maybe a period of three to five years mm -hmm. uh, to not put the company in a real you know, financial bind uh, right, just right. to pay them off. But yeah, I mean, think from an owner ownership structure, if it's done right and you think about the right things and really it's all about mm -hmm. what kind of advisors you work for, you know, work with mm -hmm. when you set it up and actually execute it. Uh, I, you know, I think it's a phenomenal, you know, phenomenal ownership structure for really mm -hmm. in, I won't say any size company, but certainly uh, middle market. And even when I left, um, you know, uh, Burns and McDonald, we were a multi-billion dollar company uh, that was an ESOP. So oh, when you joined uh, started out Burns a lot McDonald's, smaller. When did you start? At, what size did you start? So I'm assuming that growth is was probably significant. Sounds like. Oh yeah, you know, mm -hmm. uh, when uh, the company purchased itself uh, from its owners, uh, they had eight million dollars in shares uh, mm -hmm. valued at a dollar a share. Uh, those eight million eight million shares appreciated, you know, so that quite a bit over the next several years. So, wow, you know. It, it, it was very good, you know, to say the least. That's amazing. So 
just to kind of get just one more thing to get, get back onto um, an ESOP business structure. Um, what mm-hmm. is there any other advice that you give leaders looking to transition in ESOP? Um, I know that timing is one of the most important things, making sure that you plan everything. But um, is there any other advice that you give leaders um, trans- transitioning into ESOP? You know, it it's probably the same advice I, I, I give leaders all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to start planning your exit, you know, years before you want it to happen, whether you're mm-hmm. going to convert to an ESOP or even where, whether you're going to sell, you know, to private equity, to, uh, you know, another company in your industry. So you're a strategic mm-hmm. purchase. It's all about the planning and mm-hmm. it's not something you can do at the last minute. Uh, the, the, the people have, and those are usually the companies that get in trouble because they haven't mm-hmm. planned for the retirement of the owner or some, you know, very senior uh, staff uh, mm-hmm. w- within the company. So they have to take on a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it all comes to, you know, and I say this, begin with the end in mind. A lot of people aren't even familiar with ESOPs as a structure. And so they may hear about it, you know, when they're getting ready to exit. And um, don't set it up properly, just so that they're, you know, you know, covered um, when, when they do exit. And did your you had one of your companies go public as well, right? Or one of the companies that you work uh, work with? There was actually when I went from Burns McDonald, I went to Quanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, I was getting ready to start my own. Valvoline mm-hmm. Quick Loop franchises, and went to went to Quanta Services, mm-hmm. which was um, really an aggregator of utility construction companies, and uh, they were a public company. I was involved in an IPO, uh, and it was actually a a friend's company, and a group of us invested very heavily uh, in the company, and then. Uh, it went public a few years later, and that was that was an interesting experience. He was in a CEO group I was in, and so we got to see, you know, what it takes to actually take a company public, and it's an unbelievable amount of work. I, I really had no idea. And talking to him, he's like, "Yeah, I mean, I had no idea what it was going to take to go public." You know, it was. It was so, a very successful IPO, but the the time they spent on so, it was just incredible. And were you? I know that you were. You said that you were an investor, but did you spend any time mm-hmm. were you on the board of that company that went that IPO? Um, you said it was Quant- Quantas, or not? What was it? No, Sorry, not that was actually uh, um, that was LGI Homes. Okay. And you know, I wasn't on the board. Actually, we were. He was in a CEO roundtable group that I belonged mm-hmm. uh, belonged to. The the the, the owner. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, like I said, we got to see all the internals, you know, workings of what it takes to go public. Uh, you know, if you can get there, it's a great exit strategy. It is a lot of work. <laughs> from from your experience, kind of viewing it. Uh, from that group, and also being, um, it sounds like you're a personal investor. What 
what does it take for a company to IPO? You know, uh, obviously you have to go out and, you know, find uh, the, the, the financial group that will do the offering. Mm-hmm. And so a, a big portion of it is the preparation and getting your books ready so that you mm-hmm. can go public so that, you know, I mean, everybody pretty much works under, you know, the fair accounting standards, but you have to really, the books have to be done differently uh, than you can with a private company. So mm-hmm. that's been, you know, a lot of time just getting your books ready. You find a, usually a, the companies that will take you, you know, take you public and uh, will issue the shares. You, you spend a lot of time doing road shows, uh, talking to um, potential investors, whether they be, you know, and a lot of those are just mutual funds, uh, and then uh, other investment banks, you know. Uh, and that was the one thing that really, I, you know. Oh, sorry. That was the one thing. Oh, no. I no, I, that was the one thing that really surprised uh, my buddy was how much time he was going to have to spend, you know, doing presentations to potential, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to commercial investors, you know, to to get the, enough interest in mm-hmm. um, in in investors so they knew they could sell, you know, the shares when they went public. So with that, it also sounds like it takes the CEO and, and some of the other founders, a lot of grit and um, determination. And I, I know that you have a kind of a background on <laughs> kind of work culture, mental health and determination and grit. Um, but what kind of how, or actually what kind of advice would you give those folks that are looking to start their startup and also looking to potentially have that exit route or have that IPO route? Well, it, you know, if you take it all the way back to um, startups, and and you and I've worked together uh, mentoring some startups, and I, I absolutely love it because uh, you know some of the ideas that I've seen come across, and some of the founders are just phenomenal to work for. But it all comes to you know begin with the end in mind. And even if you're starting a public, uh, or excuse me, a company from scratch, know what you want to do. You know, mm-hmm. what's your exit strategy? You know, where do you yeah. want to be in, you know, one, three, five years? What's your ultimate goal? Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's now when you're starting, obviously it can change rapidly, but mm-hmm. if you don't know what you're shooting for, you know, you're, you're just working, mm-hmm. but I always, I always like to do, you know, strategic planning is one of the things I spend a lot of time with in my own companies and uh, helping other companies, mm-hmm. you know, so frame out what you want the future to be and then bring it back to even just quarterly or sometimes even monthly or weekly goals that you mm-hmm. have to meet to get to where you want to be. And the other thing, you know, I firmly believe in is, you know, celebrate every success, even if it's, you know, if you think it's small, it, it's interesting. 
you know, once once your team realizes that they're winning, it it becomes easier to keep that going. You know, that momentum builds. Uh, you know, if a football team starts the year, at, you know, at, at zero and five, uh, it's hard to build much momentum after that. But uh, you know, when you're celebrating success along the way, and it doesn't even have to be a huge celebration. Uh, but just acknowledging the fact that, hey, this was a milestone of something that we said we were going to do and we did it, uh, just creates that culture of winning, you know, throughout the company. And, you know, carry that on regardless of how large it gets. Did you notice kind of a culture change from the company going from, you know, uh, private to public? Yes, and a lot of that is just because of all the regulations that you have to, you know, follow to be a public company and mm-hmm. all the transparency. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. that private companies aren't transparent, but, uh, you know, you're now answering to uh, shareholders with so many different agendas. And just the regulatory environment that you're working in, uh, and that's where everybody ended up spending most of their time and still do, is just being able to keep up with the regulatory environment. So, you know, one of the benefits of being private, obviously, you have, you know, certain regulations you have to follow, but it's a lot easier than being a public company. Well, just um, to kind of go over some other topics, uh I wanted to dive into as well is just um, your past racing experience. Both of us are fans of racing. <laughs> I know you're a huge fan of, even a bigger fan of. Um, and also, you've mentioned that you're friends with Davy Jones, who was actually the last American to get the Le Mans. Um, but yeah, just love to learn a little bit more about oh, your racing I career. Did, I, 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 yeah, I, I totally lost you there for a second. Oh, so. Um, Go back yeah, yeah. Just again, wanted please. to just, just. Oh yeah, yeah. I just wanted to dive into uh, your racing career a little <laughs> bit more and uh, learn <laughs> how you got into it. Uh, and yeah, I know that you mentioned that your one of your personal buddies is Davy Jones, who's one of the last Americans to finish and get first in the Le Mans. Yeah, he was. He's the last American to have stood at the top step of the twenty-four hours of Le Mans. Uh, it, it, it's funny. We're actually we, we jokingly say we're, we're 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 brothers, even though his birthday's in June and mine's in September. Uh, you know, I bought a a, a used BMW uh, a few years out of college. And joined the BMW Car Club of America and went out to the track and did some high-performance driving schools. And literally after the first one, I was like, oh, this is a lot of fun, but I want to get into racing. So we're actually, you know, exchanging paint and, and uh, you know, uh, we used to get away with a lot more back then than we do now. But uh, so... I uh, purchased my first race car, uh, and then I mean, 
I'll say the rest is history. So literally, my kids grew up at the track. Uh, they yes. race carts on and off. Uh, I mean, you know, I had a, a two-year-old and a five-year-old, you know. Actually, uh, no, I had a baby and a three-year-old, you know, at, at the track on the weekends when, when I was racing. So they grew up around it, uh, loved it, you know, and just got – I was very fortunate uh, to be able to go up, uh, work my way up through several different classes. Um, I've, I've driven some unbelievable cars right now. Actually, I've uh, stepped back a little bit and race a, a highly modified Boxster S in uh, both the Porsche Club and then uh, NASA's German Touring Series. Uh, it, it's it's an unbelievably well-handling car, and I say reasonably inexpensive to keep going. So, yeah, and, and we, we picked that chassis uh, because it's a mid-engine car instead of rear-engine. Mm -hmm. And so literally it handles what, just curious, a lot. Is... I, I haven't... Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Is the Boxster, is that is that one of your main vehicles right now, or what are your... Uh... What are your main vehicles that you drive? Just curious. Oh, I mean that—that's totally. I mean that—that's a totally race, total race car. There's nothing street mm -hmm. legal about it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's you know. Because just... yeah, there yeah. is. We we we, we took a really Boxster cool. S, took took a cutting torch to it. Uh, you know, we have to have a mm -hmm. roll cage. Obviously, uh, it has a GT3 race suspension. Uh, it actually has a, an engine out of a 911. Um, I mean, it, it's full race prep. Is you know, there is absolutely nothing street street legal about that car. Uh, <laughs> and I've also I've also raced a uh, MX5 uh, Cup car, and then a uh, a Panos Esperante, which came off wow. the American Le Mans series, which I. I, I raced that in the early 2000s and for whatever reason kept it just because I love the car. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually rebuilding it now and probably going to wow. do some endurance racing with it. So, uh, we'll, so we'll your see. Racing I have to get out in the garage more. So, just your racing career stemmed from you right out of college or after a couple years after college, just getting that BMW, joining that club, the BMW club. Oh, yeah. Club. I mean, Wow. Yeah, I, I I got the bug really quick. I always say, mm -hmm. you know, c cars are a disease that can only be cured by poverty. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they got me pretty close to poverty a few times. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's been fun. And just my love of love of cars in general. And, you know, I've been extremely blessed uh, mm -hmm. to have had the opportunity to have you know, had some pretty fun cars, you know, over the years, just uh, uh, street cars. So that's been mm -hmm. great. And uh, just because of my, my time in the racing industry, I've gotten to test some just unbelievable uh, race cars at different tracks, mm -hmm. um, you know, under the guise of, Have you... you know, somebody trying to sell me a race car, but... Mm -hmm. So what? What's your favorite track that you've ever uh, uh, driven in or raced in? 
because I, I hear oh, that the number Circa one track the in the world. Which one? Which one? Circa oh, is the it Americas Austin? in Austin. That's the Austin. So it's right yeah. around the. It's yeah. It's your name. Yeah, right I, in the your backyard, basically. Oh yeah, I mean, I, as soon as that track opened up, and I had the chance to race her, I'm like, oh, this is definitely the best track in the world. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. they've built other tracks since then. And mm-hmm. everybody tries to outdo each other. So, you know, the, the next track is going to have a little bit more than than that one. But so far, it's just a a fun but, you know, pr- pretty technical track. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the half dozen best in the world. Do you think that, because I heard Nürburgring is like the perfectly built track, but it's also a huge track. Um Le Mans is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I heard is like the... It, it, have you raced on the yeah, Nürburgring? Yeah, I mean... Okay. I have not, yeah, you know, I, I've I've never had the chance to go over to Europe. I would like to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something I have my sights set on. Uh, potentially maybe going and racing an mm-hmm. LMP3 uh, in Europe mm-hmm. or even a Porsche Cup car. But... Uh, haven't done so to date, but that's that's still on my list. Are you going to see uh, the F1 race in Las Vegas coming up in a couple months? I think it's actually in November, November 20th. <laughs> yeah, I'm, my wife and I have been talking about that, and that's probably what we're going to do for our wedding anniversary. So that, well, that that's in process. My buddy and I, we just, we, we booked our tickets. We don't have we don't have tickets to the event, but we're just like, all right, let's go to Vegas. Let's see what we can see see the race. Um, just because, yeah, you know, the, the tickets, the actually seating there is super expensive. But we're gonna see if we can just see view like an F one car from any part of the track, which is most <laughs> of this trip. And I don't know. Oh, I, I mean, just the just the energy that will be there in the town will, will be unbelievable. Yeah. So you know, regardless where you're at, you're at. Uh, well, you'll be able to hear it. There's no doubt about yeah. that. And, you know, find a great place to watch it. Uh, there'll be big screens everywhere. And even, you know, inside the, uh, you know, the, the casinos will have viewing areas too that will be pretty nice. Mm-hmm. So it'll definitely be a good time. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully we'll run into each other. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just um, a couple other things. So, you did mention that, you know, you got into racing, you kind of got the bug, but then you're also building up a lot of these, these companies. Um, how, I, I know I've already asked like a time balance question, but it seems like if you're mm-hmm. kind of a semi-pro race car driver and then also like a managing partner, director, uh, building up a startup, what was like your typical day like? Like, what would you say your morning routine was? And then, how would you just schedule out your day and your, your week? Just curious, just for, for those people that really want to be as um, effective and productive <laughs> with their time. How'd you do it all? You know, you can't be good at managing other people if you can't manage yourself. Um, and it, it's strange when you think that way, but really it's, it's true. And so um, I try to keep myself to a pretty good schedule uh, you know, taking taking care of yourself physically is probably one of the most important things that you can do. Uh, just because the amount of stress that you're under 
you know, I always made sure I had time to work out. Uh, I've done martial arts for years, lifted weights. Uh, in fact, I got to the point where I always made sure that, you know, when I was booked in a hotel, that it either had a really nice gym or there was one close by. So, you know, typically uh, roll out of bed first thing in the morning, grab my workout clothes, put a hat on and and, and hit the gym uh, unless I'm doing martial arts that evening. But you have to find, and and I tell this to to entrepreneurs and even senior executives is, you have to schedule time to work on the business and not in the business. And so anybody, and I, I have always, I learned this and I've always told other people, set blocks of time, <coughs> excuse me, set blocks of time that's private work time that you can't be interrupted. In fact, I would usually, you know, I would book maybe four hours a week, which doesn't sound like much, but to have that time to literally just concentrate on the stuff that you need to, that only you can do. And, you know, thinking about what you need to do to get the business to where it needs to go and just literally brainstorming with yourself. You know, I would take a, a notepad or my laptop and I'd usually try and leave the office so I couldn't be disturbed. Uh, sit down, have a cup of coffee, and really just, you know, let your mind flow and think about, hey, what do I need to do next? What's some new things we should look at doing? What, you know, what are some new strategies we might want to consider? And so that was always important. And also, like I said before, having a plan. I mean, no matter what size my company was, we always had a very, we, we had a strategic plan and it was shared throughout the organization. I mean, everybody knew, you know, what we were trying to accomplish. And uh, literally on the very first day when somebody would start, they would get our, they would have a one page business plan given to them. Uh, it was basically, you know, mission, vision, values, and then some short term and long term goals. And the whole idea is I wanted everybody to understand how they fit in. You know, I wanted them to understand what we were trying to accomplish and where they fit in in trying to make that happen. And unfortunately, corporations are horrible about that. Uh, companies could be so much more successful if they'd spend more time um, communicating that. You know, people, people want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. And that's one of the things I stress with startups that I work with. So, you know, if you're a startup, you don't have a history and there's a good chance you may not make it. But if you can really sell a great vision and then, you know, get people excited about what you're doing and tell them, hey, this is going to be us in five years or 10 years. And I use a tool called a painted picture a lot. Uh, I have them pe have people paint the picture of what they want as their perfect or their their ideal, you know, ideal position at a, at a place in time. It may not be the end game, maybe ten years from now, and communicate that. And that's how you recruit people. You tell them, "Hey, 
you know, we're 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 gonna you know change the world by bringing you know internet to Central Africa using micro satellites, you know something like that, and it doesn't have to be even that that big of a you know uh, have that big of an impact, but let them know what they're part of, get them excited about the fact that they can help and really contribute to to doing something or to being part of something that's larger than them. And people get excited about that. I also think that's just you know, why kind of sports are such a big thing in so many different cultures. Um, they like just humans themselves. They like being part of um, an entity or group uh, that, you know, is going after something, which is... I, you know, I agree totally. People, people identify with sports. You know, the nice thing is, you know, throughout the game, at the end of the game, you know what the score is. You know where you're at. Mm-hmm. How many people inside of companies honestly don't know, you know, yeah. truthfully, I guess, what the score is and where they're mm-hmm. at. And, you know, so they just, they do their job to the best of their ability without even necessarily knowing how they contribute at all or how they can make a difference. And um, I've noticed, I've noticed you know, a lot of thing- more of, oh, sorry. No, no, oh, sorry, you can I mean, one, of, one of the things we, when you talk about, talk, talk about sports, though, all the great athletes have had great coaches. Mm-hmm. And it's the same in business, you know. Exec, I, I, I had a phenomenal executive coach for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the most important things you can have uh, is a coach that's helping you. Uh, you know, you need somebody you can talk to, and you know, the old saying is, especially higher up in the organization you are. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you've all heard it's lonely at the top. It's really, really lonely at the top because there's a lot of things you can't talk to anybody about. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can't bring it to your board of directors. You can't bring it to your other managers, uh, senior managers, officers in the group. But to have somebody that you can go to and use as as a sounding board uh, and say, hey, here's a problem I'm dealing with. And just having, you know, two people tossing about ideas helps so much and then i'm also a really big believer in mentoring with within a company i would never have anybody start a position without being assigned a mentor and then i I even change that a little bit and what i do now is (laughs) excuse me is uh, dual mentoring so i will hire a you know bring in a young new staff member and assign them to somebody that's very experienced. Now, the person that has a lot of experience can help the younger person, obviously know, you know, can help them technically um, just to know, you know, what they need to, you know, to work in the company uh, and even to forward their career. And what the younger person can help the older person do is say, hey, you know, here here's the latest technology. Um, here's how to use it because you know you you get a few years out of college, and you know a lot of things have changed. And that new person, 
you know, coming into the organization can bring a lot of that knowledge uh, to somebody that's been there quite a while. Especially this day and age, it seems like things are just changing, like, left and right. There's a, a new op, know, operating oh, yeah. system update or a new I mean, the, piece the, of technology. The, the, so it's always good. Technology, I love that, that kind of relationship. Uh, you know, um, it's, it's but, astronomical. Yeah. Well, John, I, I really appreciate uh, your time. I think uh, our listeners have learned a lot from the story. <laughs> a couple of things, actually, I'd love to invite you on another time as a guest and actually kind of dive into uh i know that your wife is colombian oops i uh, just lost you again i want to dive into kind of more latin american culture and business oh oh um, yeah start back so over. in our next episode i lost that whole um oh yeah yeah i'm just saying um i really appreciate your time today uh but i'd love to invite oh, you on again as My a guest. i know that your your wife's from colombia um i'd love to talk to you about latin american culture business in Latin America, because this is a, another big um, kind of underserved community that we Yeah, you know, with. absolutely. Um, I, really, really I've learned they have a lot of friends. She's she's from Colombia. I have a lot of friends down there. Uh, a lot of them own their own businesses, or a lot of them have moved up to the U.S. and have businesses here. And it is a totally different culture. You know, we, we do things differently, and it's taken me well, it's actually taken me several years to to learn how to adapt. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not right or wrong; it's just different, and so right. you have to learn to adapt to to that different culture. So, uh, I get a lot of coaching from my wife on that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, awesome, John. I'm excited for um, our next episode here. We can schedule that out um, in a little bit and talk more about. Um, different, yeah. adapting to different business cultures, but um, really loved our conversation today. I'm going to click the... Uh, oh, actually, is there any other last thing um, that you'd like to give our entrepreneurs or give um, our listeners any, um, anything that you're working on, any last-minute advice? You know, it's just, it, you know, a few, you know, I guess a few closing pieces of advice. Um, first of all, you know, with your business, obviously you should have mission, vision, and values. Uh, your family should have that too. And so, you know, you and your wife, you know, set that. And when your kids get a little bit older, you know, they participate in it. Um, you should have long-term plans, short-term plans. Uh, if I was to do it all over again, uh, I would have set more, I would have set more goals for myself. So I would actually know what I'm aiming for. You know, everything I did was, you know, honestly, early in my career, it just happened. Um, I took some chances and they paid off, but I didn't have a real strong plan on what I wanted to do, how I wanted to progress. Um, even fight, you know, financial goals. So, you know, that, that type of planning, I think is, is extremely important. Uh, and I guess another thing I'd yeah, really I, I... say is, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. What's another thing? That... No, it was like a two second another delay. Thing so... Oh, another thing I'd say is never stop learning. And I found the statistic interesting. 
Uh, 43% of college graduates never read another book after college. And you should always be, you know, learning. I mean, getting, you know, I got my degree in engineering, but things change constantly. And I went, I went, really did not do that much engineering before I went into corporate administration. And literally, I, you know, I always joke that I woke up every morning. It's like, well, I've never had this many people working for me before, and I've never, never done this before. So I spent a lot of time reading a lot of books, participating in uh, CEO organizations. I still, you know, I drive a lot. And so I always have an audible book going. Um, so keep learning. Have an inner circle. I, this was an interesting statistic I heard that you're, you are the average of your top five connections. So your top five friends or associates, you know, you really are the average of that group. And so that defines, will end up defining who you are. And so you want to pick the people with the, with the right values. Uh, and also know what you stand for and don't waver on that. I love that. Uh, so I think as, as long as you have a firm, you know, a firm foundation and you're well-grounded, uh, That'll pay off, you know, immensely throughout your life. I love that. I love that advice, John. And um, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, and I think our listeners are going to learn a hey. lot and uh, ultimately start planning. I think for myself, I'm definitely going to start planning a lot. <laughs> my just being more strategic, even with my days, because um, I think yeah, I'm I'm really inspired by your story, um, your career, uh, and your life, and so. I'm excited for our part two to be coming up here in the next uh, little bit. I'll talk to you soon, John. Hey. Thanks so much for, for it. Well, I'll just stop. Yeah, I, pre I appreciate the time and, and look forward to talking again. Thank you so much.